Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. And welcome to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins and today I'm talking to Anne M. Carson about her new book, The Detective's Chair, Prose Poems About Fictional Detectives. Welcome, Anne. Thanks so much, Di. It's great you could come in and congratulations on your new book. Thank you very much. It's very exciting to have a new book and it's very exciting for this one in particular because... It's my first time of having illustrations with my work and um, they've come out incredibly well. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. It has a half-page prose poem and um, a lovely black-and-white line illustration of a chair or a sofa or something similar. And, And your focus is detective fiction. So tell me, what is it about detective fiction that has inspired you? Yeah, well, it was a bit of a surprise, actually, that it led to poetry, but I've always read detective fiction, a certain kind of detective fiction, and at some point I was I was feeling like I was wasting time doing this, and I had to ask myself, you know, what is it? What is it in these books? Is it a time waster, or is there something there that's grabbing you? I'm not someone who tries to solve the crime, so it wasn't that, and... Um, Eventually, I realised that the thing I was really intrigued with was the actual process of the detective solving the crime. And the ones that I really like and became addicted to were the ones who used intuition. And so then it was a process of realising that the process of crime solving was a creative problem solving, just like poetry writing. So I felt that there was a kinship between these fictional detectives and and myself as a poet, and that we were all creative problem solvers. Yes, there's something about the de- work of, of detectives in on television and, and in books where they're sitting and thinking about all these different clues that all seem very unrelated, and then they somehow put it together into a meaningful pattern. And uh, and all these things that seemed entirely irrelevant suddenly may have a meaning and a purpose. So um, how did you feel that relates to poetry? Well, I often feel I'm very conscious of having to change gears to write a poem and I have to sort of disengage from day-to-day transactional reality. It's often when I'm walking on the beach or sitting in a chair at the end of the day or sometimes working in the garden, doing something sort of physical that isn't too mentally demanding. But 
I can't do it in the frame of mind of doing banking, for instance. And so that's what I saw with these detectives too, that they had to disengage from the sort of tedium of collecting the clues and doing the paperwork and doing the trudging around. They had to sort of somehow bring it together and the chair became a sort of symbol for that. I realised pretty soon that there were many different chairs. They weren't all desk chairs or armchairs. There were chairs, if you like, behind wheels of cars and there were cushions on the ground and there was a log on the banks of the Mekong. So I loved that too, actually, the cultural aspect of looking at the chairs and what was relevant in each culture. Yes, so the the chair becomes the centre point of gathering the intuitive process. That's right, and often it was at the end of the day and they'd kick back and there might be a beverage or two. Uh, they might be listening to music. That featured for quite a lot of them. And they would. They'd disengage from all that tedium and demand of the day and just let their thoughts sort of free up. And uh, there were lots of niggles and inklings and all those sort of ways often embodied that we get a sense of something beyond, I guess, beyond the day-to-day. And how many detectives have you created a prose poem for in the book? 32, and the last one in the book, and this is, um, I'm very grateful to the late Geordie Alberston because she said, well, you have to have one about Anne Carson, D.I. So I have. The last one in the poem is me as a detective. And I'll read that later if I can. Oh, good. Oh, that's great. Great. Okay, well, let's go to the first poem that uh, you'd like to share with us. Which one is that? It's called um, Dappled with Despair. And I might just say a bit about the layout and the constraints in this exercise because I decided pretty soon that I wanted uniformity in how the poems were. So I've made them all 14-line sort of nods at sonnets. They're not sonnets, but they're nodding in that direction. Each has a title, and I'm very grateful to my editor at Liquid Amber, Rose Lucas, for suggesting titles, because I think that has really sort of brought an essence to each poem. And then there's the detective's name and where they're based. So this one is called Dappled with Despair, and the chair is a really old... Um, patchy old armchair which which the poem starts with Detective Inspector John Rebus Waverley Road Police Station Edinburgh, Scotland The detective's chair is threadbare stained with old Guinness splashes of double malt Rebus sits on into the early hours pooled in moonlight neon, dappled with despair ensconced in smelly, smoky fug. He looks unseeing over nighttime Edinburgh, shoes ghosts back into the past, ignores conflict with the brass, other cops, even manages to bypass self-recrimination, regret, that quagmire of his multiple failings. He comes to the centre of concern, the present case. He may not be quite sober, but the blur is better. You can't bludgeon hunches out of hiding, have to be willing to hang out in their vicinity, hope they show their heads. 
He sinks another inch or two of whiskey, the better to see into the shadows, last the night through. Leonard Cohen's wise and wounded words keep him company. He nods off, as usual, the LP crackling as it spins. He's still seeking the glimmer of clues nestled between hard facts. Very interesting work. And I, I think, you know, like you say, it's a prose poem, but um, you could also format it as a conventional poem with, um, you know, sentences broken up by line breaks where the commas are now. So how do you say it's a prose poem? It could just be a poem. It could. It could be a poem. Um, there are lots of poetic devices that I really enjoyed playing with. I, I love alliter- alliteration and assonance, and they come in quite a lot. But I've justified to the right-hand margin, so even though it, you could break it up into lines, they're definitely lines, they're not chosen by myself. The end of the line I haven't chosen. I've just allowed them to turn around. And tell me about John Rebus. Who created the character? Ian Rankin, and it's been going for a long, long time. Um, I think he was first published in 2008, and I know he's a favourite of many, many readers. We love hearing about Rebus and um, how he keeps going. You sometimes wonder because there's an awful lot of whiskey that gets sunk, and uh, you also worry a bit about that chair. <laughs> it's a bit of a bit of a um, sad, even though it's very comforting for him, it's a bit of a sad chair, I think. Yes. And also, you know, the life expectancy of anyone uh, ensconced in smelly, smoky fug is limited. It is. (laughs) But, you know, I think that's one of the tropes of the detective. Often they are noir characters and you understand it. They have to immerse themselves in the worst that humans can do, and it's often bloody and horrible and um, and mean. And um, it may not be uh, the most life-affirming uh, response to that, but you can sort of understand it. Actually, there's a couple of exceptions to that, and, and Brunetti is, uh, is one of those exceptions. And who's Brunetti? Brunetti is an Italian um, commissario, and he is happily married. He's got... Two kids that he adores. He lives a very he loves he loves his wife's cooking and she cooks beautiful Italian meals for him. He doesn't sink in that way that Rebus does, for instance. Um, his laundry's always done. He's clean. His surroundings are beautiful. Um, will I read that one? Yeah, let's read Brunetti. Okay. This one's called A Happy Family Man, just to follow up that theme, and it's Commissario Guido Brunetti, Detective Superintendente Commissario Questura di San Marco, Venice, Italy. Excuse the Italian. There's nothing noir about Guido Brunetti. Noir needs ground of loneliness, food of melancholy. Crime solving gets him down from time to time. But he is reflective, philosophical, dives into Herodotus for distance. On the case, he is professional, meticulous. His nose and native cunning winkle clues out. He doesn't come home from violence to empty, taunting rooms. 
to the siren song of ghosts. His detecting is buoyed by a good woman's love, laughter from his kids. Most days, Paola cooks for him real food, not the grease and salt of takeaway. Often both lunch and dinner, calamari ripeni fusili con mozzarella di bufala e no olive nere. If lunch is on the run, he is aggrieved. Paola's wise words, humour at his expense, often pull him out of gloom, push him back to policing, refreshed. His chair is on the third floor terrace next to hers, contemplating La Serenissima, conversation, a glass or two of chilled Prosecco, gathering himself. It's a very different style of, of person, isn't it? You know, and you've got the two chairs. That's a really significant difference from Rebus's tatty old one chair. <laughs> yes, he has company. He has a companion on this journey. Um, and you can tell in reading the books, um, he's also incredibly popular. And I think he's popular for that because there aren't many detectives that combine a happy family life, a love of food and um, and crime solving. Yeah, no, it's a bit special. Now, I, you have a very um, interesting uh, reflection at the back uh, on writing The Detective's Chair where you talk about the difference between male and female detectives. Uh, what would you like... Would you like to share some of that? Yeah. Well, it was fascinating to me that... Um, I'd written, I think, maybe five or six of these little prose poems and I realised that they're all men and that wasn't um, what I read. I read um, about female detectives, so what was going on there? So I had to analyse that too and and when I did I realised that often women didn't sit down at the end of the day. At the end of the day, they might have been cutting school lunches or going to see their ailing parent or picking up the laundry. So it was a totally different approach to it. And um, so I'm really glad I, I noticed that and I was able to include it because what they had to do, and um, I do this sometimes myself, is they had to open to intuition and inklings and nudges from the unconscious on the run. And um, the one I'm going to read next is an example of that. And there are, I think, two detectives in here, one male, one female, who do their sort of thinking time behind the wheel of a car. Okay, so who would you like to read next? So it's Wachowski, Victoria Ifeyenya Wachowski. It's called Keeping Her Gun Wrist Strong. Victoria Ifeyenya Wachowski, Private Investigator, Chicago, USA. She packs picklocks, holsters her Smith & Wesson under an old windsheeter, triple locks her apartment, creeps past her neighbour's door. 3 a.m., Chicago. Something's fishy in the senator's office. Three hours to rifle files before workers arrive. Vic to her friends, Cookie and Doll to Sal, her 74 years young downstairs neighbour who joins her on stakeouts. To clients, it's V.I. Wachowski, P.I. Life on the dark side makes her cranky, 
distrustful even of loved ones. A short fuse and plenty of lip don't help. Survival as a child was street fighting. Now her late mother Gabriella's manual Olivetti keeps her gun wrists strong. Not for her philosophizing. She fights against the bad guys and for women. The only time she spends in a chair is parked, panting behind the wheel of her red Trans Am after a chase. At the end of a hard day, she likes whiskey, a bath for bruises and soreness, then to collapse into bed where night- nightmares rake her sleep. Incredible. Yeah, um, it's a very different type of person, isn't it? Somebody with this hard history and then they're working in their car. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of space around them. They're very compressed. Very compressed and very action-oriented. And, and I love the illustration for this one. It's the, It's got a gear stick, it's got the wheel, and it's got the dashboard. So the Trans Am is suggested. It's not fully fully drawn, and I think that's, that's brilliant on Renee's part. And I'd just like to thank Renee Carrasco, the illustrator, um, it was actually a friend of mine, Anne Elvie, who suggested that I have these illustrated because she said they were so visual. And um, I took her suggestion and a friend recommended Renee, who's um, originally an engineer and then he became a graphic illustrator. And he's done an absolutely fantastic job. Neither of us had done this kind of job before and we both learned heaps and enjoyed it immensely and it brought a really fun element to to the work and I appreciate that too because my last book was quite serious and it's lovely to have something that even though there's a seriousness to the underlying premise the um the sort of the enactment of it is is fun it is and the chair in this prose poem illustration is just the edge of the car seat the edge of the car seat. That's all. Yes. Yes. So all the action is the gear stick and yes, the wheel. That's right. So, I mean, it's very essentialized. You know, it's very, uh, it, it's, it's, it's very poetic in its simplicity. That's a great way of putting it, actually. Yeah, they are. All of them, I think, he's, he's managed to get that. He's managed to sort of take it right down to the essence in a very poetic way. He has. Now, I'll, we'll just talk about the book for a, a moment. Now, it's published by Liquid Amber Press. And how did you find Liquid Amber Press? Yes, they're, they're new publishers in the Melbourne scene and, and they're doing a wonderful thing, thing, really, because they have the publishing arm and I think this might be like maybe the fifth book they've published, something like that. But they're also really wanting to generate community for poets and for readers of poetry and so they have a three-monthly Zoom, which anyone's free to join if you just go on the Liquid Amber website. And um, a really beautiful, uh, generous and um, accepting atmosphere has been accepted there. So that's a lovely aspect of their publishing. And they were fantastic to work with. I really like the aesthetics of the book. One of the things that Pauline, the administrator, suggested was this beautiful part parchment paper um, as you open the book and there's a illustration of a magnifying glass there 
And I think that's a really lovely touch. It is. It's marvellous. And you've got a launch coming up as well. I um, have, yes. Yes, and that's on the 16th. 15th. The Saturday the 15th. 15th at the Athenaeum. At the Athenaeum Library. And it's 4pm on, on the Saturday. People would need to book tickets because there are a limited number of seats. But everyone's welcome. And I'm really thrilled that, uh, that well, I've dedicated the book to Dorothy Porter because she was the one, I think, who put in Australia poetry and detective detectives on the map with the monkey's mask. So I dedicated it to her and then I asked her partner, Andrea Goldsmith, if she would launch it. So Andrea's going to do the honours, which is lovely. That's fabulous. So how can people book for the launch? So they can ring on on the number nine six five zero three one double zero. Or they can go online to the Athenaeum Library, and there'll be a there'll be an email address that they can they can register their ticket. Good, yeah, and it's a it's free event. It's free. Yeah, lovely. And um, so you must have done a lot of this work during lockdown. Uh, how did how was lockdown for you during the, the pandemic? It's always great to have a project and, and having multiple projects was probably what got us all through lockdown. So I had started this project quite a few years ago. I'd written the first three poems. Rebus was one of them. And then I kept on writing them. And over lockdown, I had plenty of leisure to read more detective fiction I must say that the process of writing the poems, realising what had hooked me, totally eliminated my shame. So I now read detective fiction in a very non-embarrassed sort of way, which is lovely. Yes, well, I mean, it's fun, isn't it? You know, and it's it's great to be able to just read for enjoyment. It is. You know, it doesn't always have to be improving. No, that's right. Yeah. Now let's get to um, another source of your inspiration. You've got a quote there. Where's the quote from? So how I'd go about writing these poems was that as I was reading the books, if they were my copies of the book, I'd underline certain passages which I felt took us to the essence of how this detective did their problem solving. And um, as I said, there was lots of niggles and hunches and, um, you know, lots of, embodied reactions to intuition. And Maisie Dobbs, apart from being one of my favourite detectives, she also had a very distinctive embodied way of registering intuition. And so I thought I might just read one of the quotes from a book. I think it's the first in the series called Maisie Dobbs. The sun was high in the sky by the time Maisie came out of the post office. And as she touched the door handle of the MG, it was warm enough to cause her to flinch. Pay attention, Maurice had always cautioned her. Pay attention to the reactions of your body. It is the wisdom of the self speaking to you. Be aware of concern, of anticipation, of all the feelings that come from the self. They manifest in the body. What is their counsel? Yes, but, you know, like, if you think about non-fictional detectives, it's a bit hard to imagine those people 
having all those sensations and feelings and intuitions, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, wouldn't that be part of their repertoire of, you know, one of the things that the fictional detectives felt, often when they're getting close to solving it, there's a thrill that they experience. And and my fantasy is, I mean, you could be totally right, but my fantasy is that real-life detectives might also feel that thrill as they're getting close to solving something. Right. Oh, well, I guess there's ni- neither of us are detectives. No, we um, don't know. We don't know, <laughs> no. <laughs> now, you put yourself in the shoes of being a detective in the book and wrote uh, your own piece. Would you I like did. to share that? Thank you. So this one's called Pocket of Contemplation, Anne M. Carson, Poet D.I., Chelsea, Australia. Her chair is red, like her wine, capacious enough so she can curl cat-like in its folds. It's dusk, and the dead bodies of failed poems lie scattered around. She can't deal with bloody dismemberment just yet. Right now, she wants to follow where the new poem spore leads, quick on its heels to prevent escape. Later, engine throb throws her into reverie. She's pillion on the motorcycle, letting the world and all responsibility whiz past. The great clock stalls. A pocket of contemplation opens. Nothing is expected of her except presence. Speed awakens the kind of attention poems long for, razor sharp and rambling at the same time. Here she finds freedom, and in daily beach walks, calibrated to waves' constancy and the far horizon's seductive call. Rarely found at desks foursquare, She likes life best when thoughts think her rather than the other way around. Without distraction, ideas flock. Well, that's a a beautiful set of images. So do you actually ride pillion on a motorcycle? I used to. Right. Yeah, I used to, and I used to really enjoy it. I'm hoping now that kayaking... (laughs) (laughs) Might give me some of that. Probably not as fast, I imagine. Yes, yes. So, but it's a lovely analogy that uh, the intuitive process of of gathering and feeling and intuiting, assembling and creating is akin to the detective's process of solving a crime. Thank you. Yeah, I still feel very engaged with it. And I have to admit that I've opened a new folder on my computer that's called Detective Chair Number 2. Oh, wow. And what's in that? I've just started, I've just read uh, the series by J.K. Rowling. Uh, she used a nom de plume, Robert Galbraith, uh, and it's the Strike series. And, um, yeah, I got pretty involved with that. And he satisfies many of the criteria I had. These are the detectives I like best, the ones that do have a observable and interesting creative problem-solving sort of set of behaviours, and he satisfies that. So I'm in process. Excellent, excellent. Well, congratulations on your new book, The Detective's Chair. So I've been talking to Anne M. Carson about her new book. Well, 
I hope the launch goes well on Saturday. Thank you, Di, and thanks for having me in. It's great to be a part of it. Yeah, well, it is, it's a really lovely and very original book and, uh, and a lot of fun to read. And will it be available at readings and? I hope so. Um, it will certainly be available from Liquid Amber. Okay. And, um, all people can contact me. Great. Well, my name is Di Cousins and you've been listening to the 3CR Spoken Word Program.